Who you are depends on whose you are. As a Christian, your identity and your activity comes from Christ, not your culture. Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to earth to die for the sin of the world. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. So kind, open your Bibles to John chapter 1, John 1. Those of you who were here last week know we opened a uh, new study in the Gospel of John. John is very clear on the purpose of his writing the Gospel. At the very end of the book in John 20 verse 30, he says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, these signs have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So the purpose of John's gospel is clearly evangelistic. He writes to give you and I, the readers of this book, evidence, proof, documentation that Jesus is the promised Christ, the Son of God, and so that anyone who reads this book might believe and receive eternal life and live forever with God in heaven. So the Apostle John writes this gospel. Uh, He's often called John the Evangelist, interestingly enough, because this book is very, very evangelistic. An evangelist is someone who announces, evangel means good news, obviously, herald. Heralds the good news that God and man can be reconciled by believing in Jesus Christ, the God-man, combination of the two, fully God, fully man, And the word believe, interestingly enough, is a theme of John's writings. It appears, that word appears 98 times uh, in this gospel. So last week we opened this barely. Uh, The first five verses of the gospel, John immediately states his thesis. Now if you remember, you look back over the disciples, they were still trying to figure out who Jesus was three years into their walk with him. They weren't quite sure, is this God, is this man, is he both, whatever it is, when he parted, when he uh, walked on the water. Uh, who, you know, and, and calmed the sea. They said, who is this? I mean, he was God. He told him he was God, but they were really struggling with that. So John hits you right up front with his thesis. Jesus Christ is the Word of God. The Lord Jesus Christ is eternal God. He's creator of all things. He's a source of life, and he's the light of men. And he tells you that the first five verses. So you don't read the Gospel of John without knowing where he's coming from immediately. And then he's going to spend the rest of the book documenting that thesis. So today, he begins the process of summoning his witnesses. He has a whole variety of very credible witnesses that he's going to bring out before you, the reader, to testify that Jesus is God. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And his first eyewitness that he brings on the scene for you, the reader, as a credible witness as to the deity of Christ is John the Baptist. Let's look at verse 6. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Here's our principle. God sends his people to tell other people about his son Jesus, so they can believe and be saved. God sends his people to tell other people about his son Jesus so they can believe and be saved. I want you to notice the contrast between John and the Word. He spends the first five verses talking about the Word. The Word eternally existed. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. John was a man, right? John came at a specific point in time, the Word always is. So the Word was the light, the Lord Jesus Christ, and John was a man, a human like you and I, who witnessed about the light. As a matter of fact, you could easily call him John the Witness, because that's what he did. So John came, but he didn't come on his own initiative, did he? 
He came because he was sent. And John the Baptist was not sent by other humans. He was sent by God. One of the themes of the scripture is that the God of the Bible is a sending God. He sends people to tell other people about him so that they can come to know him. And that's part of our privilege as well. Now, it's interesting in, in, the, in this gospel, John the apostle, the author of the book, never refers to himself by name. So anytime you see the gospel of John, use the name John, they're talking about John the Baptist. John the apostle is not talking about himself because he never uses his own name. John the Baptist, interesting fellow, was not only sent by God, he was prepared by God before his birth. God sent the angel Gabriel to John the Baptist's father, to be Zacharias, who was a priest, to announce his coming birth. Now, Zacharias and Elizabeth were a little bit like Abraham and Sarah. They were old, they were elderly, they were godly, they were righteous. They had no children, they were unable to have children. They're probably in their 60s, I would guess. Mary, the mother of Jesus, interestingly enough, on the other one, was probably in her teens, and they were relatives. So John and Jesus, John the Baptist and Jesus, were probably some degree of cousin. Scripture doesn't tell us what the relationship between Mary and Elizabeth were. They were a couple generations apart, but it says they were relatives. So John and Jesus grew up together, not in the same town, but they were contemporaries. Scripture says that John was filled with the Holy Spirit while he was still in his mother's womb. I don't know if Elizabeth had bad morning sickness or whether it was really a mellow pregnancy, but Zacharias was told by the angel Gabriel that this baby's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit while he's in the womb. And I'm thinking, I wonder what Elizabeth is thinking. This baby, the Holy Spirit, is filled this baby in my womb. You know, I have to be a dramatic thing at that point. John was born about six months before Jesus. And the angel Gabriel, who, interesting enough, also announced Jesus' birth, not only told Zacharias that John was going to be born, but he told him what his job description was. His job description was going to be a forerunner of the coming Messiah. John's job description was going to minister to the nation of Israel in the spirit and power of Elijah. And his job was to preach repentance to the nation of Israel so that their hearts would be ready to receive the Messiah when he came. It was predicted that many Israelites would turn back to the Lord their God as a result of John's preaching. So John is going to have a ministry of revival in the nation of Israel. It's interesting that the Bible records that even as a child, John grew, quote, strong in spirit. Of course, the Holy Spirit had filled him from the time he was in his mother's womb. It means that he was guided and directed and controlled by the Holy Spirit. Scripture also tells us that he lived in the desert. He probably moved out of his parents' house into the desert somewhere in his teens. It says that he wore a, a camel's hair garment, which is a pretty basic garment. He ate locusts and wild honey, which means he ate off the land. This guy was not an urbanite. He wasn't metro, shall we say, right? He, uh, had, he owned nothing. He had no formal education, had no social connections at all, and he lived a very basic life off the land. He kept a Nazarite vow, which means he abstained from wine and strong liquor. Scripture says he was a man of prayer who taught his disciples to pray. He was completely isolated from the culture of his day. He was not connected with the culture. He was living in the wilderness. Today, we would call him a hermit or an antisocial or a desert nomad. I mean, our culture would have some interesting labels for John, if he was living out in the Mojave Desert, talking with God. The reality, this desert isolation is what helped him hear what God had to say. Sometimes we just need to get away from the noise, right? Try turning off the electronic devices for even a couple of hours and live in your house with dead silence. Dead silence for at least a half a day. I challenge you to try and do that. You might get very uncomfortable without the noise of the culture, but that's what John did. And Luke 3.1 says, quote, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, 
And he goes through this long litany. Luke tells us all the people that were governor and elected and parliamentarians and presidents, and here's what the world was up to. And this was, they were large and in charge. Verse 2. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, where? In the wilderness. If you want to hear God's voice, you got to shut up. And you got to shut the culture up, at least for a time. We talk about this. We say we need to have a quiet time. And I realize that I don't know what that means to you, but it means you need one-to-one, face-to-face time with Jesus every day. If you're going to hear him, you need to be quiet because as we tell our children, you can't listen if you're talking, right? So John, or Rob rather, is going to show you a map where John was operating. It's A.D. 26 to 27. We know that because that's when... Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, and that was the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. John is about 30 years old. God spoke to John, and he sent him to preach in the Jordan River of the Alley Wilderness. Now, there are two sites where we think John was baptizing, one just south of the Sea of Galilee and one even further south near Jericho, north of the Dead Sea. He'd been listening to the Holy Spirit his entire life, and God gave John a message that he wanted Israel to hear. And John had been listening to the Lord, so he knew what that message was. John's preaching was very bold and very courageous. He was filled with the Spirit, and he spoke God's Word. And he preached a very hard-hitting message. He preached a message of personal repentance, confession of sin, and baptism. Let's take a look at that. Luke 3, 7. So John began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, quote, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that does not bear fruit, good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. This was not what we would call a seeker-friendly message. John was not concerned with their felt needs or what they were emotionally feeling. He told them what God told him to say, period. And God told John, tell them to repent because my judgment is coming if they refuse to repent. Now, the religious leaders of the day had told the people, look, You don't need to worry about this repentance stuff. You are sons of Abraham. And because you're sons of Abraham, you're in the right family. God is your friend regardless of your behavior, right? Because you have blood relative. John basically says, God has no grandchildren. Each of you individually needs to repent and have a right relationship with God. And repentance, of course, involves both a change of belief and a change of behavior. The reality is, over time, if there's no change in behavior, then there's no Jesus in your heart. I have a very simple forward theology. No change, no Jesus. If over a period of months and years, if there's no change, then you don't have Jesus. Because Jesus Christ is God, the Holy Spirit come in the flesh. When he enters your life, he will change it. Amen? Amen. If he can't change you, then he's not God. Well, guess what? He can and does. So John was called to be a witness. Now, a witness is someone who is often called into court to testify under oath about matters of which they have knowledge. We call them eyewitnesses. In a court of law, the truth of a matter is established on the basis of evidence. And some of that evidence may be eyewitness evidence. So the purpose of John's witness is that others would believe that Jesus Christ is is God, the Savior of the world. His job was to tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ. John was an agent of belief. Jesus was the object of belief. Jesus was the point. So God's plan is that his gospel, the good news that God and man can be reconciled through Christ, would be communicated through people. That often struck me. Have you ever thought God could 
communicate the gospel more effectively than using us? Have you ever looked in the mirror and you thought, why would God choose to use me to communicate the gospel to someone else? I mean, I'm a rather imperfect messenger to say the least. However, Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Romans 10, 13, quote, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14, how then will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him who have they not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? So God sent John, and God sends you and me in our sphere of influence to tell other people about the Lord Jesus Christ. John was sent by God to witness that Messiah was coming. We are sent to witness that Jesus Christ has come and has laid down his life for the sins of the world. So what did John say about Messiah? Verse 15. John testified him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Verse 19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent him to him, priests and Levites from Jerusalem, to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Here's the principle. Who you are depends on whose you are. As a Christian, your identity and your activity comes from Christ, not your culture. Who you are depends on whose you are. As a Christian, your identity and your activity comes from Christ, not your culture. Now, we're going to look at John and his activity on three consecutive days. In this passage, verse 19 is day one. Verse 29 says, on the next day. And verse 35 says, on the next day. This is the only time I know of where we have three consecutive days outlined in the life of John the Baptist. On day one, John's message is, he's here. Messiah is here. On day two, John's message is, look at him. Look at him. He says, behold him. And on day three, John says, follow him. He's talking about the Messiah. So three messages on three consecutive days. Now, John the Baptist is the very first witness that the apostle John calls to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. We're going to be looking at a lot more of them in the coming months, but this is the first one. These events take place in AD 26-27, a couple of months after John had baptized Jesus. So there is a spiritual revival going on in the land of Israel because of John's preaching. And by the way, John's preaching does not take place in normal channels. He doesn't operate within a church. He doesn't preach in a synagogue. He doesn't have a congregation. He preaches in the desert in the open air, right? He's very popular. And he draws great crowds, which is fascinating. He calls them a brood of vipers, and they come out to hear it. Does that not strike you as interesting? Clearly, the Holy Spirit is saying, I'm in this ministry. I am calling people to repentance. I'm not calling them to have their emotions coddled. I'm calling to tell them spiritual truth and I'm telling them what I want them to do. The religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, refused to go and hear him. Now remember, the Sanhedrin is the civil, judicial, and religious body that governs Israel. The Sanhedrin consists of 70 members plus the high priest, and they were generally controlled by the family of the high priest. It was a political appointment at this point in time. It's obvious to everyone in Israel that the Holy Spirit is doing a work through the gospel of, through the preaching of John the Baptist. Interestingly, John the Baptist does no miracles. But he preaches a message of repentance, and the Holy Spirit anoints that message and calls people to repentance. And as a result of that, many people in Israel are speculating, wonder if John is the Messiah, because the power of God is clearly on him. So the Sanhedrin is hearing about this guy, and many crowds are going out to the Jordan River, right, east of Jerusalem, to hear him. So they send a delegation out to find out about him. They want to find out who he is. 
They want to know what he's doing and why he's doing what he's doing. Now remember, the Sanhedrin's responsible for the spiritual welfare of the nation, but what's not said here, what's pretty clear, is they're trying to protect their turf right now. They were the religious establishment, right? They were the state church, if you will, and they issued the religious franchises and supervised the religious instruction of the nation. So John did not come through their university system. He didn't go to rabbi school. He didn't go to any school. He was a renegade. He was a maverick. He was unknown. He was uneducated. He had spent his entire life out in the desert. And he's preaching a message of repentance. Crowds are coming to him, and the religious establishment's going, what is going on? We don't know this character, but it's pretty clear that God is doing a work, or someone's doing a work through him. So they send a delegation out to interrogate him. Now, the Apostle John uses the term, the Jews. You're going to see this term 70 times in the Gospel. 70 times he uses the word, the Jews. That always refers to the enemies of Christ. It's not a global term for the nation. It is not a global term for the common person. It is a global term for the enemies of Christ, the elite religious establishment. They're apostate from the Jewish faith. They're not following it. And they are enemies of Christ. And they ask him, who are you? Now John knows they want to know if he's the Messiah. But they can't quite say the word Messiah. So the text says, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. In the Greek, this is very strong. It literally implies that John is livid. John is outraged that they would even ask if he's the Messiah. He says, I am not the Christ, right? He emphatically denies it. The next question, number two, are you Elijah? Now, the last time God had spoken to the nation of Israel was 400 years earlier. So they have not had a word from God in 400 years, right? Prophet Malachi was the last revelation of God. And the very end of Malachi, almost near the very end of the book, Malachi 4 or 5, God promises the nation of Israel, quote, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So the Jewish nation was expecting Elijah to arrive before the Messiah came. So if John wasn't the Messiah, maybe he was Elijah. And John says, I'm not Elijah. Now John was not Elijah, but John was like Elijah. They were both commanded to confront sin, to declare the need for repentance. They both had very similar personalities. They both came from rural desert areas. They both were zealous for God. And neither one of them cared anything about human opinion. They were just going to speak for God and let it go at that. So Gabriel, the angel, had told John's father, Zacharias, that John's job description was to, quote, go as a forerunner before the coming Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, we look back on history and we say, well, that's pretty simple. We know that Messiah is going to come twice. He came the first time as a suffering servant. The second time he's coming as a conquering king. They didn't know that. They just thought Messiah showed up one time. And at Messiah's first coming, John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He had a ministry like Elijah. At Messiah's second coming, when he comes back to rule and reign, Elijah's going to show up in person. That's predicted in Revelation. So John, this time, is like Elijah. He's not literally Elijah. Next go-around, Elijah himself is going to come. So he says, I'm not the Messiah. I am not Elijah. And they said, are you the prophet? Now, the prophet was predicted by Moses in Deuteronomy 18. And God told Moses, tell the nation of Israel that I'm going to raise up a prophet like you, Moses, in the future, and Israel will listen, must listen to that prophet. So they wondered, are, are you that prophet that Moses talked about, you know, 1,400 years ago? And John gave him a one-word answer, no. If you notice his answers are getting shorter and shorter and shorter, John doesn't like to talk about himself. Matter of fact, that prophet 
was Christ that Moses talked about. I'm going to raise up a prophet that you're going to listen to. That was the Messiah. So John is refusing the temptation to exalt himself. They want to know who he is, and John is very clear on who he is. He's also very clear on who he's not, and he's not the Messiah. His identity and his activity come from the Lord God, not from his culture. You know, we sing a song occasionally in church. I think the chorus goes, I am who you say I am. You know that, somewhat. The culture says, you are who you say you are. And our culture is just more than a little confused about who they are. I mean, identity changes. I am this, and now I'm that, and I'm not sure, and I'm next week I'll be a they, or a she, or a it, or a whatever. And you know, you track the use of pronouns, and you find out that people are really confused who they are. Well, guess what? Your identity doesn't come from the culture. It comes from the Lord Jesus Christ who created you in his own image and redeemed you by his blood. You are who he says you are, not the culture. Now, in order to know who you are in God's eyes, what do you have to do? Spend time with Jesus every day. Because Satan wants to fog you on who you are. He wants to tell you you're not worthy of being redeemed. Well, that's not news. Of course we're not worthy. But Jesus says, I love you and I redeemed you regardless. And we need to camp on what God says about us, not what the culture says about us. Verse 22. Then they said to him, this is the delegation from the Pharisees, who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? John said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. So this delegation of priests and Levites can't go back to Jerusalem without answers for the Sanhedrin, so they, they, they press John. Tell us your credentials. Tell us your identity. Who are you? And interestingly, John doesn't say, well, my birth was predicted by the angel Gabriel, Right? I'm going to be filled with the Spirit from my mother's womb, and I'm going to go as a forerunner. He doesn't say that. He doesn't tell anything. He says, I am a voice. John exemplifies the humility that we should exhibit. He focused people's attention on Messiah, not himself. John says, I am a voice that is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. And he quotes the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 40, verse 3. Quote, a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Here's the principle. We must prepare our hearts every day for God's presence by turning away from anything that takes away from his glory. We must prepare our hearts every day for God's presence by turning away from anything that takes away from his glory. Now, John, when he is preaching, he's in a physical wilderness, right? He's in a desert. Isaiah's not necessarily talking about a physical geography. He's talking about spiritual geography. Isaiah is comparing the human heart to a desert. The hearts of Israel were barren, bone dry, hard, rough. The nation of Israel at that point in time, I would say our nation as well, is pockmarked with pride and self-righteousness and filled with the debris of sin. And Isaiah says, and John was preaching that, Create a highway in your heart. Make a freeway in your heart for Messiah to come into your life and have free access to your heart. God should not have to break down locked doors to get into your heart. He says, make a freeway for the Lord. The road to your heart should be open for Messiah to come in anytime he wants. 
and he uses these metaphors. He says, there are valleys in your heart. There are base things that need to be lifted up, right? There are valleys in your life. There are things that are base, that are low. They need to be brought up and elevated. And there's also things in your heart. There are mountains and hills. Those are the areas of pride and self-righteousness and the proud things. And these need to be humbled. He said, in your heart, there's rough ground. There's crooked paths. There's deviant ways in our hearts that need to be straightened out. And he says, there's rugged terrain in your heart. That means the debris of sin clutters our lives and needs to be cleared away. By the way, this is what John was preaching to the nation of Israel. Repent. Repent means submit to God as he purifies your life by clearing out the sin in your life. You cannot hold on to your sin and hold on to Christ at the same time. Repentance means to literally turn toward God and turn away from sin. And John is preaching that to the nation, and Isaiah was preaching that to the nation, and God the Holy Spirit is preaching that same message to us right now. He says, let me clean up your heart. John was going before Messiah came to prepare the hearts of the nation of Israel. Now the reality is this often happened in real life. When a king traveled to a different area of their realm, let's say they were visiting your town, right? The president comes to visit your town. I mean, we prep, right? I mean, the announcement goes out, the president's showing up, you know, the bomb squad shows up, the snipers, the helicopters, all the PR people, the television crews. I mean, we go all out, you know, when somebody important visits the town. Back in the day when that was occurring, a herald would come and say, by the way, the king's coming to your area in a couple of months. And they would clean the area up. You know, they'd get rid of the trash, they'd paint the buildings, and they'd prepare a smooth path so the king could ride on the chariot without getting bounced around. Kind of like, you know, red carpet treatment. That's what John said. Israel, get your heart ready to meet Messiah. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ says to us every day. Prepare your heart to meet your God. Let me in your life. Let me deal with the sin in your life. Let me smooth out the rough places and build up the base places and humble down the proud places so that I have access into your heart. Your heart should not be a locked door. It should be an open freeway with a green light to God. Israel's problem is Messiah had come to save them, but they didn't think they needed to be saved. They were proud of their heritage. They despised everybody that wasn't a Jew. And John says, you need to recognize that you're sinners, that you need a Savior. You know, you have friends in this life, and you can talk to them about a Savior, right? Guess what? If they don't think their sin's a problem, they don't need a Savior. Because they're not convinced they're sinners. We don't need saving unless we're sinners, unless we're separated from God. That's where conviction of sin and repentance comes in. None of us came to Christ because we were convinced we had it all together. Came to Christ and we were convinced we didn't have it all together and we were separated from God and we needed to be reconciled. And the same is true of people in your life. That's why we talk to God a lot more than we talk to them. We'd be praying that God will open the doors and bring conviction of sin so we tell them about the Savior that will have ears to hear. So the, the, John's questioners, this, this um, Pharisee group, they were the most influential religious sect of the Jewish religion at that time. There were 6,000 of them, and they were extremely legalistic, right? They not only observed the Ten Commandments, they had 16, 613 other oral laws that they followed, and you were supposed to follow them as well, which nobody could. But they told the nation... If you follow our rules, since you're a child of Abraham, you're right with God, which was not true. In fact, this group was self-righteous, hypocritical, greedy, and they selfishly took advantage of their fellow Jews and persecuted Jesus. Verse 25, they asked John and said to him, why are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. 
It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where, Jesus, where John was baptizing. They were, they were basically saying, what is your source of authority? Who gave you the right to baptize since you're not Messiah, Elijah, nor the prophet? Now here's what really bothered them. John was preaching that not only did Gentiles need to repent, but Jews needed to repent. Individually needed to repent and come to God or they would be judged. The religious leaders had said, there is no such thing as personal repentance. You have the blood relationship, you follow our man-made rules and the law of Moses, and you're right with God. And John said, no, every single one of you is sinner. Every single one of you needs a Savior. God has no grandchildren. Here's what bothered them. They were controlling the people with their man-made rules, and John threatened that because he said, you can have a direct relationship with the Messiah yourself. And we have a lot of religious systems in our culture today that demand that you go through them before you talk to Jesus. Hey, you could talk to Jesus direct, 24-7, anytime, anywhere, any place, for any reason. So they say, by what authority to baptize? And John tells them in verse 33, I'm baptizing because God commanded me to do so, so it came from God. But I, John doesn't want to talk about baptism. He doesn't want to talk about himself. He wants to talk about Messiah. He says, Messiah is so much above me, I'm not even worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. Now, by the way, Back in the day, they wore sandals, leather, and roads were not paved. There were no sidewalks. You walked in the dirt. So when you're hiking 10, 15 miles to the next destination, when you showed up at that house, your feet were dirty, dusty, might be muddy, whatever it happens to be. And no disciple or learner was ever required to take off somebody's sandal. That was the responsibility of the lowest of the lowest slave to bend over and take somebody's dirty sandals off and wash their feet. That's why when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, they were stunned, because that was the work of the lowest possible slave. And John says, I'm not even worthy to do that to Messiah, because he is God and I am not. Verse 29, this is day two. Day two. The next day, John saw Jesus coming at him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. This is he on, whom beha on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I because he existed before me. Here's the principle. Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to earth to die for the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to earth to die for the sin of the world. So on day one, John says, he's here, Messiah is here which should have knocked their socks off. Messiah had been predicted for hundreds of years. You would think the entire nation would say, Messiah, God in the flesh is here. Go out and worship him. They couldn't be bothered. Now he says, look at him. Look at him. Behold him. John sees Jesus walking toward him, and he publicly announces that Jesus is Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now this knocked their socks off. This was shocking. The Jews expected Messiah to be a king, a warrior, who was going to free them from Roman bondage. And Jesus says, John says, no, Jesus is the Lamb of God. You know what they did with lambs in that culture? They killed them. I mean, they were sacrifices. A lamb was not a warrior. A lamb was innocent, helpless, cute, cuddly, and they were going to sacrifice him. The sins of the world needed to be paid for, and Messiah was the Lamb of God who came to die on earth for human sin, but they did not know what to do with that because they thought they were going to get a king, and they got a lamb. What they didn't understand is Messiah is coming back the second time as a king. So the question would be, good question, how did John the Baptist know that Jesus was the Messiah? I mean, how was he so sure that he's the Messiah? I'll give you the backstory. Forty days earlier from this day, John had baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. Matthew 3 tells us, After being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and John saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon Jesus. 
And behold, a voice out of the heavens saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Immediately following his baptism, scripture records that the spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. Right now, verse 29 tells us this is the 41st day and Jesus is coming back from the desert after having battled and conquered Satan and temptation and he's coming back into the land and when John sees Jesus walking toward him, he declares to the crowd that Jesus is the Lamb of God and then he explains how he knew that his cousin Jesus was the Messiah. Look at verse 31. John says, I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. The Spirit remained on Jesus. I did not recognize Messiah, but he who sent me to baptize him in water said to me, quote, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. What's interesting is John was called to testify about the coming Messiah, but for most of his ministry, he didn't know who he was. He knew Messiah was coming, but he couldn't identify who Messiah was. God told John, you'll know who the Messiah is when you see the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove. That's the identification of Messiah. So John baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River. The Holy Spirit comes down like a dove, rests on him, and God the Father speaks and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Pretty clear, right? You hear a voice from heaven that says, this is Messiah. John witnesses this and he says, I got it, right? The deity of Christ is declared by the Father and the Holy Spirit Simultaneously, John witnesses that and he says, I'm telling you as a credible witness, Jesus Christ is the Son of God because I saw the Holy Spirit descend and I heard the Father declare it to be so. Verse 35. Day 3. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and he said, quote, Behold the Lamb of God. Verse 37, the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Now, these two disciples are Andrew and John, the apostle. John the Baptist essentially says, look, there's the Lamb of God. Follow him, don't follow me. And those two disciples follow Jesus, and John is thrilled with their decision. If you look at John 3, 26, sometime later, Jesus is baptizing, and the crowds that follow Jesus are bigger than the crowds that follow John. And John's disciples are having a little trouble with this, right? Look at John 3, 26. And they, John's disciples, came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full, he must increase, but I must decrease. Here's the principle. Our purpose and pleasure is to point people to Jesus. Our purpose and pleasure, our joy is to point people to Jesus. We must humble ourselves and magnify him. So sometime later, Jesus comes down from Galilee in the north to the south where John's baptizing. Jesus also begins baptizing, and the crowds leave John, largely, and follow Jesus. And it bothers John's disciples, but it excites John, because his whole purpose was what? I am a forerunner. My whole purpose is to point to Jesus. What's your whole purpose? To point to Jesus, right? You talk about him, not yourself. 
I, I'm not saying there's not a place for personal testimony, but when you're sharing Christ, it's about Him. Right? Not about us. Christians exist to exalt Christ. Here's an interesting phrase I heard 30 years ago that grabbed me around the throat. You cannot exalt Jesus Christ in yourself at the same time. You cannot exalt Jesus Christ and yourself at the same time. You have to choose who's going to get the attention. See, the only reason we're on planet Earth is to make disciples, right? If God did not want to communicate the gospel through people, at the moment of salvation, he'd rapture you out of here and you'd be in heaven. If he was communicating gospel to other people for any other mechanism other than through people, there'd be no reason for you to be here. I mean, you're taking up space, right? But he has a job description for us to do because he has decided that the best way to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ that changed lives, that he can change lives, is through people's lives who have been changed. Changed people change people through the power of the Holy Spirit. When we as Christians are loving and obeying Christ, we are the best evidence that Jesus Christ is real. Now, when Christians live like the devil, they're the worst evidence that Jesus Christ is real and changes lives. That's why John spends so much time on the nation of Israel saying, you must repent. You must let God do a work in your heart. You must have a highway open for the Holy Spirit to come in and purify your lives. So you live in such a way that people see Jesus in you. It's been said, I think well said, for many people, you're the only Jesus they will ever know. Most people you come in contact with are not in church now. They won't know about Jesus except through you. And your words will mean nothing to them unless your life is like the life of Christ. Not perfectly, none of us are perfect. But we're opening our lives to the Lord and saying, Lord, I want you to have your way in my life. I want to live in such a way to honor you, and I want to speak in such a way that people will see you and not me. That's how the Lord God has designed the gospel to be transmitted through people. Now, here's the good news. When people look at you, they don't expect perfection. As a Christian, they don't expect perfection. But they're very attracted to authenticity. They're very, very, very attracted to authenticity. Honesty, transparency. And when you tell people what the Lord has done in your life, and you point to Him, you're credible if you're moving in the direction of obedience. They know you're not perfect. They don't expect you to be perfect. But they expect you to be moving toward that in the power of God. Does that make sense? By the way, ultimately, we don't save anybody. God, the Holy Spirit, works through us as very, very imperfect vessels in order to accomplish His purposes. I am amazed that the Lord would say, I want to use people to communicate the gospel to the people. But that's what he chose to do. And you were saved because someone, what? Loved you enough to tell you about Jesus. And we are called to do exactly the same thing. Love people enough to tell them about Jesus. So when we listen to God's voice, like John did, get out in the desert, turn the sound off, listen to God's voice, give God a free way to your heart, repent of your sin, Commit to live a life that pleases Him. What it does, it gives your verbal testimony tremendous authenticity, tremendous power. You don't have to have a PhD. John had no education. 
And yet, he was obedient to the Lord, and so the Lord used him in powerful ways. The number one thing that John did that I think is useful for us to remember is John was all about Christ. He didn't want to talk about himself. He was a humble servant. And as a result of that, Christ got all the glory and not himself. And I think that's a powerful lesson for us. So let me review before Tom comes up and leads us in prayer and praise. First and foremost, God sends his people to tell other people about his son Jesus so they can believe and be saved. God has people in your life this week. Pray for them. Pray for you. Number two, who you are depends on whose you are. As a Christian, your identity and your activity comes from Christ, not your culture. Number three, we must prepare our hearts every day for God's presence. It's amazing that God wants to live inside us, in our temple, by turning away from anything that takes away from his glory. We want God to have a clean heart to live in. Number four, Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to earth to die for the sin of the world. This is the message of Christmas, as we heard this morning. And lastly, our purpose and our pleasure, our joy, is to point people to Jesus. In order to do that, we have to humble ourselves. You cannot magnify the Lord Jesus Christ and yourself at the same time. John the Baptist is a very, very useful biography. I encourage you this week, just go through the four Gospels. He's usually talked about in the first three chapters. And just take a look at John the Baptist's life and say, Lord, what is it that you want to teach me from this that I need to pay attention to? Thanks for being here. Love you all. Now that you know... Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.